Yeah, we've been talking about the breathing, Eric, and that you've been experimenting with uh, various things, which is exactly the way that it should be done to play with the breath. That if you look at actually the, the title of the sutta, Anapanasati, that means paying attention to the breathing. That we understand that this is a long, deep in-breath. We understand that it's a long, deep out-breath. Or we understand that it is, is a short, but deep breath. Or a short, but deep out-breath. Uh, that in fact, the, the long and the short both have the quality of being under your control. Not absent-minded, nor um, let us put it this way. Imagine then that the breathing is something like uh, driving a car and you're sitting there uh, with your hands not on the steering wheel. Now, it's quite possible that the, that the car is going to stay on the road. But it does tend to need a little bit of adjustment from time to time, or we're going to crash one way or the other. Okay. Now, one of the things that I've seen in movies is when people are pretending to drive a car because it's a movie and they're filming, people now tend to do that all the time. And that is, is that uh, there's a little bit of play in the steering wheel for the back and forth. And so here people are doing this while they're driving the car and that is not required at all. That in fact, you could actually drive the car with just two fingers, just because you don't need to be doing it this way, right? And what I'm getting at is with the breathing, many Westerners put too much work into it. That the guidance of the breath and the controlling of the breath is actually super duper easy to do. <laughs> and, the, and the body really loves it too. When you take that long, when you remember to take that long, deep breath. And what we're building up is the sati to remember to do that often. And then Westerners will start putting rules on by changing the word often to always or from often to every rather than just often in the sense of when you need it. And that's going to be there, uh, <clears throat> let us say, for the well-skilled, advanced student and old monk. that it's easy to control. And we do it often, but not every time, not all the time. Nor do we put those expectations that you've got to be mindful of every breath. So that if you were actually mindful of and took one big, deep, long breath, about once a minute, that would be probably quite a lot of improvement. 
Now, I wouldn't recommend, but you might try having the bell ring once every minute or once every two minutes. And all we're going to do when that bell rings without doing anything else, hopefully it can ring and then shut up. You don't have to go do something to the cell phone to stop it ringing. But if you can get it to just ring, just to remind you, and the only thing that it's going to remind you of is to check things out. But in fact, I've got a joke about that, checking things out, all right? It's on the plane, and there just happened to be the seating, and I think that the stewardess did this on purpose. And she put a, a, a Catholic priest beside a Jewish rabbi on one side and a Buddhist monk, a, a bhikkhu, on the other. And they had a tight little conversation probably during the year. And then for, after a while, when they were flying, all of a sudden, without warning, the, uh, the plane has huge turbulence. And it goes <laughs> like that. And everybody, you know, things fall out of the rack and stuff like that happens. And then it straightens back out. And the priest does this. And the Jew, the rabbi, he does this too. And then he looks over at the Buddhist monk and he's doing it too. <laughs> and the Catholic priest looking at you and said, you guys are teasing me. And the, uh, the, the old Jewish rabbi spoke first and he says, no, no, no. In such a case, you have to check. We have to make sure. And so I'm checking spectacles, testicles, watches, wallets. <laughs> and the priest looked at him and said, you're still teasing me. And then he took to the, uh, to the Buddhist monk. And he says, well, why are you doing that? And he says, I'm just checking the four foundations of mindfulness. <laughs> How's my mind? How's my behavior? How's my heart? And how's my breathing? Okay. So at those points in time of turbulence, we need to check this. How's our feelings? How's our heart? What's the mental thing going on? Uh, what's our behavior? And how's our breathing? Taking a deep breath and checking things out. And we need to do that over and over and over again on a regular basis, most specifically every time there's any turbulence which in your life happens often enough. <laughs> yeah. So the, the neural pathways are swirly. Pardon? The neural pathways are swirly. Yes, the neural pathways to put them into uh, uh, action to remember to look at what's going on, to remember to look at your breath, take a deep, long breath, to remember how you feel, look at how you're feeling, to remember what you've got on your mind, and to remember to look at what state of mind you're, you've got. 
And so we want to remember this on a, uh, let us say, often enough basis, especially when there's turbulence, when we actually need it the most. So an example of that would be that here you are driving down uh, the highway, you're doing this, you know, and then you see in the rearview mirror red and blue lights and you hear the siren and now you start driving this way. <laughs> and you pull over to the side of the road. And what happens? Where's our mojo? Do we remember that we can be friendly with this guy? That whatever happens, it's going to be okay. But most people have the idea, oh no, right? They've already got stuff on their mind. And when they see the cop, they really got stuff on their mind. This is the moment when we need Sati to wake up and to clean things up, to take a good deep breath, be still my heart. <laughs> no pounding needed. We're not in danger. On that, um, in that last cycle, you also mentioned the importance of leaving uh, a bit of time, one or two seconds or more, uh, in the outbreath, like uh, on an empty outbreath. And I found that when you really are beginning to get into the rhythm of it, that empty, yeah, that empty breath kind of exposes the tension of emotions so that you can like focus on them more intently and relax them and Absolutely. that's really useful yes that space between the out breath and the in breath that's why we do it this way backwards from what is called box breathing which is there they hold the breath in at the end of the intake to maximize the oxygen What we're doing is putting the gap between the out-breath and the in-breath uh, for the relaxation and also to get in touch with how we're feeling. That in fact, we want to get in touch with how we're feeling at that moment, and that's the right way to do it. That if we've gotten wholesome thought to wholesome thought to wholesome thought to wholesome thought, which is leading to really, really good feeling, that in that gap of the outbreath, we can actually experience how good we actually do feel. And this fits in directly with the understanding that's in the sutras of going into the second jhana, is getting really in touch with how good we feel is actually a kind of thought, but it's not discursive thought. We don't have to talk to ourselves about how, how good we We're actually experiencing how good Yeah. And in that, there's like a quality of touching. Would you say so? Like touching with the mind? Yes, you actually are touching the body now with your mind. It's like Getting you, you sink with it. Like you sink a bit a bit into the skin. Um, one of the ways of saying it is is that the human body is absolutely covered with neurons. 
much more so than uh, than many animals. But I know that for sure about the dogs, that they have either nothing going on or ferocious biting or, or um, uh, uh, scratching. And yet, they don't even know that they're ticks on To where if I get one of the ticks off the dog, I normally know it before it bites. But while it's still crawling on the skin, I'll notice it. That in fact, I removed the tick from the dog's ear uh, yesterday. And it got on, on my fingers and then I lost track of it. I couldn't find it. I thought it had fallen. And then I felt it. It was crawling across right here. Tiny one too. And so being very sensitive to the skin is something that we actually grow out of. That little children, that's their primary sensory awareness. That the children, very, very tender infants, respond mostly to touch. Just like dogs do. They respond mostly to touch. In fact, dogs and, and babies, especially dogs, they don't even open their eyes for a couple of days. But that, that sensitive, sensitivity oh, to, to touch is paramount and that we've got many, many more neuron receptors than dogs do. And that we begin to get in touch also that that means a lot of pain. Learning to walk for humans is much more difficult than a dog learning to walk. That in fact, some animals are born walking. As they come out, they come out walking. They, they don't ever touch, their whole body never touches anything uh, because the first thing that hits the ground is their feet and they stay on their feet. Like right? deer, right? Humans, like... we can't do that. Horses normally lay down for maybe 10 seconds or so, but then they're on their feet. How old does a child get before 18 months, two years is when that walking period, they're just getting started. And before that, there's a whole lot of falling down and a whole lot of pain and a whole lot of crying. Babies cry a lot. They cry because of what they see. Do they cry because of what they hear? Well, sometimes if it's a big bang or something. No, they cry because their body is uncomfortable. And so what we have done is, is that we begin to not pay attention to the body anymore. That people can have cancers and not know it. There's all kinds of things that can happen in the body that people are not aware of because they have stopped paying attention to the body. And here we come with the Buddha coming. Step three of Anapanasati is we're going to use this breathing to reestablish being, um, let us say the mind-body connection is like the same thing as being in touch or being in the body. Is come back in touch with the body, become aware of it. For example, what are your thumbs doing right now? They're touching. Yes, okay. But until I made a, a point of it, you weren't paying attention to it. So, this is actually 
in the uh, Maha, uh, Maha, uh, Mahasi and the Burmese, they have a phrase, rising, falling, touching, sitting. Rising, falling, touching, sitting is a major part of their practice. And it's also very similar to the Kawanka method. Uh, first, they do three days of anapana, uh, breathing, and then seven days of opening the body's awareness in a very systematic place-by-place -place way right down. Uh, but what that does is because of the organization, it gives the students an idea that every piece of part of the body is the same or unique, and they're all equal. And therefore, it's okay to, to wake them up systematically. Uh, but that's not the way that it's actually arranged in the sutras. The way it's mentioned in the sutras is you begin to pay attention. For instance, when you're walking, pay attention to your legs. Now, you don't have to do that lifting up, moving up, over, down, put, like they have in the Vasudhi market. That's way overboard. Mm -hmm. That's way, way overboard. But getting used to feeling what your feet feel like. What does each toe feel like? Spread your toes out. Get, a, get in touch with the foot. Find out where any tensions are in the body and stretch that out. This is, this is actually step three of Anapanasati, is Hatha Yoga. Get in touch with the body. Now, Hatha Yoga goes overboard, mm -hmm. just like the Goanka method, and the rising, falling, touching, sitting is the in and the out breath. The touching is the touching of the outside of the body. But there's also a touching system that happens on the inside of the body. It's called the proprioceptic system, the inside. In other words, you don't have to look down at your foot to see what position it's in. You already know that. Not because you touch, it's because you know it internally. So getting in touch with that sitting or getting in touch with the, the touching is the outside and then uh, the sitting is on the inside. and Anything that happens in there, you should be aware of. Mm -hmm. Find out where all the aches and pains and tensions and all of that kind of stuff is, and the time to do that is at that outbreath. But that's a really good time at the end of the outbreath to take a kind of an inventory of your posture and the body and the feelings and what's loudest, what speaks the, the loudest. Is it an inch on the old shoulder here? Is it the way that the left foot is sitting on its side? Is it the way that the right foot is touching? Is there any big toe there that can feel the, uh, the plastic fabric of the carpet? You know, this is the kind of stuff that you, that you go through. Just checking things out. What do you experience? With the idea then, the next point <clears throat> is just to relax. Now, when I'm doing the counting that I'm doing with the students, that's not the same as recommending you should always count with your breath. No, 
the counting is done to give the students an understanding of getting their breath longer. That we want to start with <clears throat> perhaps uh, the normal shallow breathing that people do would be um, at about 20 breaths a minute. If we come down to Anapanasati with the short breath, that would be um, like six breaths a minute for 10 seconds. Five or three, three, two would be the way to do it. That's a really short breath. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, except a little bit slower than that. One, two, three, one, two, three, one. And that'll get it down to about six breaths a minute. We can practice at that sometimes. And then sometimes we can practice, which would be also very close to the box breathing. And then we can go a little bit longer than that up to, in fact, I would recommend the, the, uh, the longest that we should practice would be 884. That's 20 breaths, excuse me, that's 20 seconds or three breaths a minute. It will naturally tend to go even slower than that. It will go slower than that, down from 20 seconds down to 30 seconds. Yeah, but once in a while when you're getting too sleepy, slip in there a couple of shorter, short, vigorous breaths. Well, the important point, though, is that these are still long, controlled breaths. They are not absent-minded, shallow, or stop breathing kinds of breath. And that, that four-second gap will give plenty of time to do quite a lot of inventory and, and also quite a long time of keeping the mind quiet. So we can experiment now with how long our breaths are, knowing that we're, that we're starting off with them being controlled and shorter and deep, and to be more controlled longer and deep. But they always have the quality of their deep and their control. And it does not take a whole lot of control. It's an easy control. A little dab of control will do you. That gives plenty of mind moments that, in fact, if you're uh, down to 20 seconds in an in-out breath, that's a lot of time to do a whole lot of stuff, including with the uh, um, applied and sustained thought or the gladdening of the mind is to give yourself intentionally really, really good thoughts. Like, wow, isn't this so great? Oh, I feel so good. Wow, and that, I get myself really great in this state. And that I was wondering um, of the about the wholesome use of imagination because you've thought you've uh, talked about like verbal wholesome thoughts and also like more feeling wholesome thoughts. But I was wondering what if instead of saying, "Wow, this is great," you imagine like. Uh, like colorful, colorful, nice lights, or okay. yeah, some something Cartoon? with the imagination. 
<laughs> yes, cartoons, good artwork. In fact, uh, in the Mahayana tradition, they emphasize that with both mandalas and uh, uh, what do they call it? Tokas, where they have visual images that someone must is painting of some, um, let us say, attribute, but the artwork is of some sort of deity that the, the mistake is, is to, to make them um, uh, the personification of that, that drawing rather than not personifying it, but using it merely as a symbol for that attribute. An example would be compassion or wisdom or something like that. They've got other spirits. Yeah. Okay. Buddha Tara. Pardon? The female Buddha Tara of compassion. Compassion, precisely. Mm -hmm. And she's got many, many different names, too. Mother Mary, full of grace, is one name that she's got. And then uh, the Chinese have a name, and so do the Japanese and, and, uh, and uh, the Vietnamese. They've all got various names. Uh, but uh, what we're actually looking at is not how beautiful this female image is, but rather what the image represents, which mm -hmm. is nurturing. Mm -hmm. To evoke Nurturing. something, a feeling within. Mm -hmm. That in fact, I would go so far as to say that the, the Pali word karuna is wrongly translated as compassion. That a much better understanding we should have would be nurturing. The mommy who nurtures. The mother and child the nurturing that is happening so that we take that image and feel both nurtured and nurturing. So yes, I'm all into visual images. You I like use the them visual yourself? image of the greenness of, of nature, mm -hmm. but that also has that same nurturing quality. I feel nurtured when I'm out here on the porch just in this environment yeah the difference that i feel sometimes is that when you say wow this is great or this is a really excellent breath you're like ascribing a quality to what you're perceiving whereas if you're uh evoking a visual imagery it's like you're wanting something that is not here sometimes i feel like it doesn't have that quality but sometimes it does and i don't know what's uh suscitates that difference within me well uh they can be misused in fact one misuse of it is to turn that taka into uh a casino mm -hmm. in the sense of sitting there with that deity that image you open your eyes you study it you get it really close and then you close your eyes and try to recreate it precisely in your mind's mind's image then you open your eyes and start working on it again so that over and over and over and over again you begin to build up the nimata 
so that you can remember precisely what that image looks like. Mm -hmm. Artists sometimes learn that technique so that they don't have to keep going back and looking at the subject that they're drawing. They take a look at her and now they get, you know, they're, they're, they're arting for five minutes. So they know what she looks like. They, they got it. But, but junior artists, they have to keep looking back because they don't have that image fully established in their mind. Okay, so we can do it that way. But like I say, uh, that skill that an artist can have, artists are also known to be extremely temperamental. Mm -hmm. and, and so being able to do that nematode trick of being able to see a visual image and then be game and uh, photographic memory or being able to memorize it is not actually what we need to do with that image. Rather, we need to use the compassion because that's what it was, or better still, the nurturing is to get in touch mm. with that nurturing. So here it goes from a sea feel. You yeah. see the image and you see the nurturing and then you feel the nurturing. Yeah, instead of see want. Mm -hmm. mm. So to see want, you see feel and you see the nurturing right here in this moment. And so that's the correct use of those images. And, and there's... <laughs> Actually, in the old days, there were only a few, maybe a hundred or so. But now, almost anything. I mean, we've got cameras now. We've got all kinds of photographs, so we can do all kinds of things to get these various um, uh, armies and find a visual image for for one of them. And then you can use that visual image to bring that up. An example would be nurturing. Another one would be generosity. So you could see maybe an image of uh, a wealthy man uh, handing $500 to a hobo. In fact, I've seen those kind of clips intentionally. The, the Asians do it. But it, 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 they're, they're supposed to be spontaneous with just a camera. But you can tell by the camera angles and other things like that that this is staged by bad actors. <laughs> But the point is, is that somebody drops some money and somebody else hands it to them or somebody asks you to give them uh, something and you give it to them and they return it with an additional five hundred dollars, you know, that kind of thing. So these could be done in visual images to give people the feeling of generosity and gratitude. And then possibly one that I would use would be the vision of a ship, uh, a large uh, fishing boat, not one of these huge things, but one that goes up and down, the big ones that go up and down when the waves go up and down. And there the captain is with his sea legs being able to handle that deck as it's going back and forth to where one of the, uh, the passengers on board is falling down because he can't handle But in fact, that actually happened. Uh, uh, I've been telling that story for a long time. And then we went several years ago over to Copangan, uh, from Copangan over to Koh Samui for the visa. And the ferry ride happened to have been extraordinarily turbulent, more so than I have ever seen before. And so this big ferry with big uh, uh, bars and whatnot, it's going up and down like this. 
and I knew that Tam couldn't handle it. And so I says, let's go to the back of the ship. Because a lot of people have never been on board ships, but, but uh, planes are safer at the back, and so are ships. You go to the back of the ship because it's the front of the ship that's going up and down with the waves when you're cutting through. And so I took her to the back of the ship. She had trouble getting to the back of the ship. She fell on four or five people on the way back. <laughs> And uh, because I had a bit of sea legs, I was able to manage myself. You know, you kind of know how to get in the rhythm of it. All right. So this would be an example then of a visual image of a, a, a sea to where some people can handle the ups and downs of the, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And some people uh, can't, can't stay standing so they don't have their balance. So there's all kinds of images that we can have. This is fun thinking about various uh, images and mm -hmm. um, Ordinary enemies being friends with each other. The lion and the lamb, you know, they lay down together. But then the joke is, yeah, but the lamb doesn't get much sleep. <laughs> the, the shark thing, Finding Nemo. I, I've heard the name of the movie. I know it's a Disney movie, and it's about a goldfish that's looking for uh, yeah. another goldfish. Or something. <laughs> yeah, they there's a part in the movie that where they meet some a group of sharks, and they uh, they repented their old ways, and their their motto is "Fish are friends, not food." Ah, okay. So there are many kinds of visualizations that we can have, and there is no need for when we're practicing for one to close their eyes. That no place in the suttas does it ever say to close your eyes. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa announced it and it took me a while to figure out what he actually meant by that because I had a, a feeling that what he intended was is for people to close their eyes. But he said it in a way uh, to give them complete permission to not close their eyes. It's up to you. But if your eyes get heavy, you would gently close them. You know, that's the trick to get people to close their eyes when, in fact, you don't have to close your eyes. But the problem with um, meditation retreats is that people will get distracted mm -hmm. by what they're seeing rather than using their sight to say, look out a window at a tree with a bird. And that's that's a really good image to focus on. Yeah. So uh, having one's eyes open while practicing is okay. There's another point is, is that many people um, don't have the experience of paying attention to their body. They're all visually oriented. And so shutting the eyes and taking that away, you've seen people go around the childhood because they put a patch because the other eye is lazy. And so we cover up the good one to make the lazy eye work. Have you ever heard about that? That's 1950s stuff. <laughs> anyway, uh, the point is, is that if you close your eyes, 
that will uh, reduce 90% of the input that we pay attention to. So that then we have only the body to pay attention to. Which is good because that's what we need to wake up the most. Yeah. Also, I think another advantage is that, uh, well, at least I tended to always be looking for something. That's something I didn't realize until recently. And if you're with your eye closed, it's harder for you to look for something. That's right. When your eyes are closed, you don't get distracted. Looking for something to get distracted with. Yeah. And but so closing the eyes has some benefit to it, but it's not necessary. And in fact, the better you get it to practice, the less necessary the eyes are closed. That's closing the eyes, I guess, for the beginner through the intermediate. Mm -hmm. And also just shutting the world out. We're so visually oriented that we don't recognize that we have to shut the world out. That we're right there in the world. But like an ostrich, that hides his head in the sand to protect himself from the danger if we just close our eyes because we're so visually oriented that that actually allows us to be in touch with the world in an even better way through the body, through the senses. Mm -hmm. Really wake up that sense of touch. Back to my original question, I think uh, what I would gather from what you said now is that uh, it would be like um, paying attention to the out breath before breathing, starting the the anapanasati, like starting in the out breath. What I was describing at first, like grabbing hold of the feeling, it would be like paying attention in the end of an out breath. All right, here's a game to play. When you do have sati and you remember to come back to the breath, do you come back with an in-breath or with an out-breath? Or do you find sometimes you come to an in-breath or sometimes you come to an out-breath? For me, it's almost always coming with an in-breath. I mean, whatever the other breath was, it may be in the process of an out-breath, but when I think about it, it's always an in-breath. Coming back to life. Inhaling, taking things in, inspiring, in fact. Mm -hmm. And so that wake up almost always has an in-breath. But up to you to see what is it that happens when you first wake up? What's your next breath? Is it going to be an in or an out breath? Yeah. I started doing it because uh, many of my in-breaths that I tried to practice with Sati, like the quality of the in-breath is more like um, like checking a box, like, oh, I have to breathe. Where, whereas if I uh, focus on the out-breath, it's like uh, establishing that there is a, a bodily need to breathe. So I'm relieving uh, a need instead of okay. uh, checking a box. Yes, that's an important point, is the whole idea of life that the breath is life itself. 
without the breathing, you're not alive. The trees breathe. Even the weather breathes. Dogs breathe. Everything is breathing in and out on a regular basis, a regular cycle. And so we begin to pay attention to that cycle in the sense that it's alive. Congratulations, you're still alive. With all the crap that's happened to you your whole life, it didn't kill you. <laughs> With all the poor breathing that you've done your whole life, it didn't kill you. You're still alive. Congratulations. And this breath, wow, what a nice breath. You're still alive. And so appreciating the breath. Appreciating that it's life-giving. And in fact, um, if you're dead, nothing matters. Most people have come to that, that if you die, then your house doesn't matter. If you die, your job doesn't matter. If you die, your laptop doesn't matter. If you die, nothing much matters. Maybe you'll write a will, but the will writing is when you're still alive, because after you're dead, it really, you don't care. There's nothing to care, and there's no one to care, right? So that whole point about death is, is that uh, staying alive really is the important thing. There is nothing left other than being alive. If you're not alive, nothing can be important. So the only number one big thing is staying alive. And that's right down into the DNA. The DNA provides us with a self-preservation mechanism to stay alive. And that, it, uh, that feeling is the feeling of fear. And so you know you're alive because you can feel fear. And the fear is to not be alive. And it's a very, very small little cycle that we're in, but it winds up that there's only one important thing left. And that is this next breath. It's the only important thing there really is. In all of your life, the next breath is the only thing that's important. If you don't take it, you're dead. How's that for this next breath? You're going to like it or not? Because <laughs> you need it to stay alive. And being alive. And that's so marvelous. Think about it. It's so, so marvelous to be alive. And so the meditator who is sitting there and he sees out the window and he sees a bird on the tree, he's, wow, congratulations, birds are still alive. Congratulations, tree, you're still alive. Everything is just that way. We, we congratulate it because that's what it's all about is just being alive. As opposed to being in danger of not being alive, which is what Dukkha is all about. <laughs> so with that, you add that to the breathing. You can add that to the visualizations. Whatever it is that keeps coming back to this issue of paying attention to the fact that you're alive. That you've got a body to experience that aliveness. But it's not just aliveness with the eyes. We've got a huge aliveness with all of those neurons all over our body. In fact, they say, I don't know, I haven't counted them. 
that of all the rods and cones that we have in the eyes, all of those neurons, you've got more neurons on the index tip of your finger than you have in your eye. But I do know this, that my, my fingers are extremely, extremely sensitive. Even in old age, I learned that actually as a mechanic, learned to use the hands as eyes so that you can feel your way through that computer or feel your way through that. Uh, uh, actually, now I can even remove the ticks from the dogs without ever uh, looking at it. I just, you know, I'm scratching. <laughs> yeah, I'm just scratching the dog. And while she's getting it, oh, she feels that good. Oh, it feels so good. Ah, oh, but there's a tick. <laughs> and I can get it. <laughs> And so we begin to use that. Yes, so we know, don't we? <laughs> so we, uh, uh, we begin to wake up the body using the breathing to do so. And in the process of that waking up, we become safe and secure and comfortable and relaxed. So this whole feeling of satisfaction with safe, security, and comfort is very much body-oriented also. If you're sitting on a shoe, you're uncomfortable, and you don't like it, and it doesn't matter what you're doing with meditation to breathe in and breathe out, sitting on that shoe, you don't want it. So the right thing to do is to pull that shoe out and let the body get comfortable. Then we can practice correctly of getting the body comfortable. So that then what we have to experience with the body is all, let us say, interesting and available for research, as opposed to, oh, I don't want to go there to that part of the body because it's in pain. So we want to get the body in the state of comfort so that we can do a thorough investigation. It's sort of like the FBI wants all of the staff to leave the house so that they can do their raid properly. <laughs> That's an analogy for the recent news. But anyway, <laughs> the, the point is, is that getting the body really, really comfortable is part of the practice of understanding the body and getting it comfortable so that it can become relaxed. Yeah, but and the we breathing can do is... that with visualizations. We can do that with sound also. We can use that with all kinds of things, but without the body getting relaxed, we're not going to be able to get the feelings as uh, we could. So the body is associated with Go ahead. No, yeah, that deep breathing really makes a difference and catching on uh, to a rhythm because I don't know, I used to feel like distinctly sensations of sukha and piti and feeling vibrantly alive, but still uh, like uh, lingering tension or linger lingering fear. And with that uh, sustained deep breathing, it's like, uh, like a layer of wholesomeness. <laughs> and mm -hmm. yeah, like a protective layer. Well, that's good. You keep practicing like this. This is um, uh, some stuff that you can put into your your practice about 
how to use the eyes and how to use other parts of the body. Another one would, would be um, to, while you're breathing in and out, depending upon the environment that you're in, but pay particular attention to what you can smell. What does the air that you're with smell like? Is there any detection of dust or dirt? Is there any uh, indication of um, the moisture in the air? We really can pick up stuff that we don't because we're not paying attention to it. So smelling the air, wake up and smell the air. Get a load of what's going on with it. Dogs are very olfactory oriented. Their whole life is that way. Dogs don't see as well as humans do. And everything about their life, you know, especially uh, uh, the dirt, uh, where the animals that they want, uh, we've got a new puppy in the house, and that uh, the best that I can determine, she's a mix. All dogs in Thailand are a mix, but she seems to be primarily rat terrier. She's not a Jack Candles terrier she, or Jack Russell terrier. She's more of a terrier than that. This is a dirt dog, <laughs> and she's smacking and, and uh, scratching and all kinds of stuff like that. It's really uh, beautiful to watch her. Um, Everything is all factory oriented. They, I can throw food down and she doesn't see it, but she will sniff around, she'll find it. She doesn't, they don't even know how to find food with their eyes unless they actually see the movement of food where it lands or whatever. In fact, the other dogs have already got them trained to where they can catch food out of the air when they throw it in their direction. They're very good at it to catch it. Um, but if they don't catch it, then the eyes job is over and now it's the nose job to go find the food where it landed. Well, we don't do that. We use the eyes for everything. And so started to wake the nose up and start paying attention to what things smell like. And that's another side of point is, is to make sure that the nose is free. That it's not clogged up. That humans let their noses get clogged up. I don't know why, mm -hmm. but you should, you know, um, there are various techniques, including putting warm, salty water up the nose and um, um, antihistamines, all kinds of things that we can put there to keep the nose clean. That it's best not to breathe through the mouth at all, except perhaps occasionally on an outbreak. But, but the in-breath should be coming into the nose because it cleans the air, it warms the air, it moisturizes the air, and gets the air actually in a, um, a pressure. It builds up a pressure as it goes into the lungs, which makes it ideal. So the nose prepares the air to go into the lungs, but the mouth doesn't. Number one, it doesn't clean the air. So all that dirt when you're breathing with your mouth. And so if you're in a city where there is dirt in the air, people will breathe through the mouth and then they'll get black lung disease or whatever. The coal miners, they would get all of that clogged up if they would uh, take, uh, you know, uh, 15 or 20 seconds once an hour to clean out their noses. They would have never caught black lung disease. Maybe. Okay, so... <laughs> That, that's it. Uh, if you want to uh, keep 
good, healthy lungs, clean out your nostrils, clean out your nose. Do you clean your nose every day? Pardon? Do you clean your nostrils every day? More often than every day. More, but especially in the morning when I wake up. But then if there's any sign of it being um, uh, one way or the other, then I will clean it out again. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's all it takes to clean it out. Mm-hmm. Just to suck really hard, pull all of that phlegm out, put it to the back and then suck it down and swallow it. Because it's not going to hurt anything in the stomach. But it will keep you from breathing well if you leave it up in the in the sinuses and whatnot. So I say more often than once a day. Okay. But for sure, early in the morning. Perhaps we could say that that would be the first thing that you want to do is to check. Is there any congestion in the lungs? If so, throw it out. Is there any congestion in the not in the uh, uh, sinuses and the nasal passages and all of that? Clean it out. Yeah, I have some cleaning to do over there. <laughs> so that's the whole idea then is to get breathing going really well. Pay attention to how we're breathing. Stay healthy. Yeah, exercise helps a lot. Pardon? Exercise helps a lot. Well, it does, but uh, mostly when people are exercising, they have their mind on the exercising, letting only the anterior cortex of the mind taking care of the breathing, which is really the important part anyway. But who says that you have to, to do a lot of weightlifting and exercise in order to breathe well, when you can breathe well, happily, mindfully, as part of your Anapanasati practice. Fitness coach. And walking meditation is good too, because that actually is very cardiovascularly um, uh, efficient. Um, they say that there are actually three heart muscles, the big one in the chest, and then two more in the calves of the legs, that you can actually pump blood by just in and out and in and out with the calf of the leg to tighten it and then loosen it and then tighten it and then loosen it, which you do when you're walking. Because the blood comes down through the feet um, and and back up. And as the muscle of the the legs uh, um, fill up with blood when they're relaxing, then when they tighten up, the, uh, the blood comes back up doesn't go down or through the capillaries, it goes back. I mean, blood only flows one way, right? There's a whole lot of valves in the body that keep the blood going in only one direction. And so uh, exercising our muscles actually is uh, cardiovascular. And breathing is also part of that exercise. And so here you are, you can sit in your chair and get all the exercise you need just by tightening and loosening the muscles to find out where the tensions are. I mean, Anapanasati is what this is all about, is getting in touch Mm -hmm. with the body and getting it to relax, (laughs) getting it healthy.
But because of our workers' mentality, we think that it's all the exercise. Oh, you got to go exercise, and that's all there is to it. Just exercise, which means physical bodily movement without recognizing, no, we got to look at the anatomy to go see what's really going on because the, the benefits from the, uh, from the exercise can be had in other ways without us having to do so much work. You get to benefit that way. So this is what the practice really is all about with Anapanasati is getting in touch with the body as the foundation. Because without the mind being able to control and have the body awake and in, in the present moment, I mean, the mind and the body were really working together there. And then the two of them will work on the feelings that you have to be in a mentally safe environment and you have to be physically safe and comfortable in order for the feelings to actually be safe, to actually feel safe. You need the mind and the body in conjunction to help those poor feelings out because they've been, you know, pressurized and weathered into feeling fear much of the time, unnecessarily. And so we use the mind and the body then to gladden uh, with the mind and to energize the body and uh, comfortize the body. And now the two of them can work on the feelings of getting the feelings safe, secure, comfortable. So, touching, sitting, rising, falling. Touching, sitting, rising, falling is all about the body. Paying attention to the body. And then begin to uh, use that to get our feelings correct. Feel the way that we want to feel rather than the feeling the way that we're in the habit of feeling. The so, feeling, Eric, how do you feel right now? I feel good. I feel nurtured. I feel good. <laughs> <laughs> I feel good. <laughs> I have one one last question, maybe for, for next time, but uh, you uh, equate the feelings to the the child child persona, right? Child self. Mm -hmm. So it's not. It's a child inside whose language is the language of emotions, mm -hmm. the language of feelings. So feelings are always responsive, right? It's not that we change the feelings; we change how the other parts of the mind treat the feelings, so that. It responds wholesomely. Yes, that's partially true and is more true in the beginning. That we are, in fact, completely controlled by the way that we, we feel from the outside. And so in order to practice getting ourselves into feeling good, we work with the body and the mind together. To get the body and the mind to feel good and to feel comfortable and to feel relaxed and to pay attention. And then the, the feelings will come along with that. Ah, but once you've got them in the door, now you can begin to work on them directly. So you actually do take control of the feelings. Okay. But you got to get your hands on them first. <laughs> uh, you got to be mindful mind of that. 
and your hands wrapped around the feelings. And once you do, once the pincer movement of dividing the feelings gets a handle on those feelings, now you can begin to feel the way that you want to directly. But always through the breath. Pardon? Always through the breath, or is it? Easy, easily enough through the breath. Okay. I mean, you oh, got to yeah. breathe anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very convenient. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? <laughs> but in fact, this next breath is even more important than the feelings, so why not use them together anyway? Yeah. Because the breathing feels really good. If you're going to control your feelings and taking that in-breath, it helps you feel really good. Yeah, that's a good point. We have to breathe anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, Eric, I think that we've gotten enough today for this. This is really great. I feel good. I heard you say that. I'll remember. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Always. Aries got the um, James Brown meditation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, good. Actually, we'll see you later. Yeah, have a good day. Okay, bye bye. <laughs>